I uh, will oftentimes think about if I could have one superpower, what would it be? And sometimes we've even had conversations about this as like icebreakers for community group. And so some of you probably have already answered this question. Um, but I, I try to think of like a, a superpower that's, that's actually somewhat realistic. Um, you know, like the ability to fly probably isn't going to be something that I'm ever granted this side of glory. However, the superpower that comes to mind is I wish I had a photographic memory. I wish I could just read something once and be done with it. I have to read things like three, four, or five times, and then I have to take copious notes just to make sure that I, I understood everything. And the idea of just being able to look at something and just remember it sounds incredible. Some people have that ability. I, unfortunately, do not. However, we're just, as a people, generally speaking, a forgetful people. And so we need signs, thing, things to remind us. I mean, we're driving down the, the road and we see the speed limit several times on the road, just in case you forgot, speed limit's 55. Okay, so slow it down. Just in case you forgot. Now, the, we also have championship banners um, when you go into schools. Hey, 1968, we won the wrestling championship. Or 2009, we won the football championship. Whatever it is, there's these banners. Then you also have trophies, whether it be for athletics or whether it be for uh, work accomplishments. You get into a certain tier sales club, you get a, a, a plaque. We have tombstones for loved ones. We have engagement rings to point us to a future promise. And we have wedding rings to be reminded of that promise. We're forgetful people and we need signs for remembering. In fact, our, our culture even sets aside certain days for remembering, like Independence Day, remembering our freedom, those who, who paid a great price for that. Memorial Day, something similar, those who have fought for us. Veterans Day, Thanksgiving. And in today's text, as we look at it, we're going to see God not only freeing his people, but then encouraging them to not forget it. He's, he's recognizing that they are forgetful people. And so he's established earlier this idea of Passover and give, he gave all kinds of detailed instructions. And then he's going to hit home like, hey, now you can participate in this, this Passover meal to help you remember what I have done for you. God wants them to be reminded that their freedom was not free. And so as we look at the text today, that if you're looking for one summary statement, you can see it at the top of your notes there, that your freedom was not free. So always remember the cost. Your freedom was not free. So always remember the, co the cost. And so if you are joining us this morning and uh, you recognize that we are in the book of Exodus, some background is going to be helpful for you right now. So previously, God chose this man, Moses. He previously lived in Egypt, and then he fled Egypt, and he lived in the wilderness for 40 years. So he's in Egypt for 40 years, and then he came, and then he went to the wilderness for 40 years, and then God called him out of the wilderness and said, you are going to lead my people out of their slavery. I've heard their call. I've seen the way that Egypt has treated them, the way that Pharaoh has oppressed them, and I'm going to deliver them, and you, Moses, are going to be the guy that I'm going to use to lead them out. And so Moses returned to Egypt after being gone for 40 years. And he tells Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, what God's plan is for his people. Pharaoh, now remember Egypt worshiped hundreds, perhaps thousands of false gods. And so Pharaoh says, hey, look, I've never heard of this God. God had revealed his personal name to Moses as Yahweh. And so Pharaoh's like, I've never heard of Yahweh. And so therefore I'm not gonna listen to Yahweh. I have no reason to. And so God makes himself known. 
That's the, that's the theme that we see throughout this, this whole book of Exodus is God making himself known. And he makes himself known by doing these amazing signs and wonders that not only get Pharaoh and Egypt's attention, but it also makes them recognize that several of the gods associated with those signs and wonders are insufficient to protect them from Yahweh. And today, after sending nine different plagues, nine different signs and wonders humiliating dozens of Egypt's false gods, God continues to make himself known to Pharaoh and to Egypt. And this 10th plague he had warned about now takes place. And he had been, he had already outlined ways for them to remember what was going to take place through the Passover. And this week, not only does the final plague take place, not only is Israel released, but he also provides additional Passover instructions. So that's some background just to help us as we jump into this text. We are in Exodus uh, chapter 12. So if you're flipping in your Bibles, flip to the beginning, you'll find Genesis, and then you'll find the book of Exodus. Then as you're flipping around there, find the big number 12. And we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 51. Exodus 12, 29 through 51. And if you're uh, looking at your bulletin, you'll see that there are three uh, points there to help you just kind of follow along. Uh, Those three points are remember God's judgment, remember God's rescue, and remember God's sacrifice. Remember God's judgment, remember God's rescue, and remember God's sacrifice. And if you are using one of the Blue Provided Bibles, that's going to be on page 54 as we get ready to read that section. If you don't own a Bible, please consider that blue one yours to take home. Okay, let's read Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 29. This is God's word. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. There was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had, that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt, 
It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this text, we praise you for your faithfulness to keep your word and your faithfulness to deliver your people. Help us not to forget the cost. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in that first point there, remembering God's judgment, there are three things that we learn from these four verses regarding God's judgment. The first one is that God's judgment shows no bias. <coughs> Excuse me. So in verse 29, we see that at midnight, the Lord struck down <coughs> all, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So he says, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who's on his throne, to the firstborn that is in the dungeon, the prisoner in the dungeon. So no, no bias here between, okay, this, this Pharaoh guy, he's on the throne, let's, let's, let's spare him a little bit because maybe if he's, if he's converted, then he can really have some influence. No, there's no bias. God's judgment came upon all of them and came upon with no bias. The firstborn from those who are high up socially to those who are low, even the firstborn of the livestock. Wasn't that most of Egypt was struck down or 90% or even 99%? The word there is all, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt were struck down. It was Pharaoh in his elevated position or if it was the prisoner in his lowly position, no special treatment was provided. The second thing is that God's judgment reaches all people. So there's no bias shown by God's judgment, but it also reaches all people. So if you look at verse 30, Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Friends, no one fell through the cracks. No one was forgotten. No one was overlooked. God's judgment came upon all people. Now, natural question is, well, weren't the Israelites overlooked? Well, it might seem like that, but remember verse 23 of this same chapter. So if you look at verse 23, what you're going to read is that the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So it's not that, that God overlooked the Israelites. Judgment came to their door. However, the Israelites who obeyed God's voice and took the blood of a spotless lamb and put it on the, the doorpost and the lintel, when the destroyer came through, 
the angel of God came through, he saw that judgment had already come upon that house and there was no more judgment necessary. They lived because the lamb didn't. God had given them instructions, given them his word, and they obeyed, which should be a contrast. As we go through this passage, we're just going to see Israel obeys, submits to God's word. Egypt doesn't. One is freed and goes to life. The other, judgment brings death. Then the third thing is that God's judgment makes freedom possible. See that in verses 31 and 32. So it's a sad reality that it, that the nine previous plagues weren't sufficient for Egypt to bow its knee to God. You would think that you see bowling ball sized hail coming out of the sky, fire going on, the, the Nile turning to blood. You'd think all these frogs, the, the locusts, the fly, I mean, all these various different plagues, you would think that after nine of them, they might say, okay, our gods can't save us anymore. We are going to bow the knee to Yahweh. However, all of those, sadly, were not sufficient. And friends, I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you're considering Christianity, don't be like the Egyptians. Don't turn a deaf ear to God despite all of the evidence. They continue to trust in themselves. They continue to trust in their own, uh, their own false gods, their own ways of saying this particular thing over here is going to save me. We're just like the Egyptians. My bank account will save me. My health will save me. My friends will save me. People like me. I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Don't, don't entrust your salvation in something other than God. That is part of the purpose of the place to realize that none of these things can save you. Only Yahweh, only the Lord can save you. Consider Proverbs 29 with Egypt in mind. Proverbs 29, 1. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Friends, don't be so stubborn in your own ways that it eventually leads to your destruction. Like I said, we want you to have conversations. If you're wrestling through something, bring it to us. We'd love to talk with you about some, some things that might be difficult to believe in the faith. Don't feel like that's an embarrassing question. Bring them. We'd love to have this conversation. And if we don't know, then we'll tell you. We don't know. We need to look into that. That's not a bad thing. However, don't be so stuck in your ways that you just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to all the evidence that God has provided for you. It took the death of Egypt's firstborn son to realize that they needed to release God's firstborn son. Remember, God had called Israel his firstborn son in chapter four. Verse 22, we see, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God told Egypt right on the front end, this is what's gonna happen. If you do not obey my voice, you are going to lose your firstborn, your firstborn son because I will be sure to release mine. After much patience, nine plagues, God finally, he finally brings about his most severe judgment upon Egypt. And don't forget this. Don't, don't, don't overlook this connection. That it's through that judgment that their freedom is possible. Through judgment, freedom is possible. God's judgment, friends, shows no bias. It reaches all people. 
And it makes freedom possible. See, everyone will face God's judgment. You, me, your parents, your siblings, your friends, your children, your coworkers, your neighbors, your enemies. We will all face God's judgment. And Romans tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, Jesus is the firstborn that received God's judgment. It says Egypt's firstborn died under God's judgment. Jesus is the firstborn who received God's judgment. He died so that we wouldn't have to. Look, we're, we're more like Egypt than Israel. We need someone to stand in our place. We have not submitted to God's law perfectly. So we read, read there about the harmony of the law and the gospel. We've, we failed to obey God's law. We need somebody to stand in our place because judgment is coming for all and it has no bias. But in the gospel, God secures our freedom, not by taking away another son like he did with Egypt, but by giving up his own son to stand in our place and take the death that we deserve to die. As a Christian, what are you doing to help others know about this freedom? This is great news. We want to tell others. We don't want to just keep it right here. We want our neighbors to know, our coworkers, friends, family. What are you doing to help others know about this freedom that God offers? There are people all around us who will go to bed tonight, like the Egyptians, not realizing that judgment is at their door. It's important for man to live once, and after that comes judgment. What are you doing to let them know, hey, you can, you can be free. The judgment that you deserve, someone else has, has offered to pay for. Also, as we consider the great cry that was throughout Egypt, it's a cry unlike Egypt had ever seen. Recognize that it's okay to be hurting. Sometimes we can, we can feel like, hey, as a Christian, I, I should always put on a happy front. Uh, if, I, if I'm looking like things are bad, then and it kind of somewhat shows that I'm not trusting the Lord, like I should be trusting the Lord. No, that's not the case. Anguish comes even upon us. However, the Egyptians did not take their anguish to the Lord. What we should learn from their anguish is that we need to take it to the God of comfort. He is near the brokenhearted. He saves the broken in spirit. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're you're thinking about Christianity, uh, very grateful that you're here. But you have an opportunity today to receive what God says. Egypt heard what God said and rejected it. You have an opportunity today to hear what God says and receive it. Don't pass it up. Acknowledge that you have been rejecting him. Confess that Christ is Lord, Master, King, and trust Christ to be the firstborn who died in your place. So he took on your judgment. And if you do that, then like Israel, you'll experience true freedom, which leads us to our second point. Remember God's rescue. (coughs) Excuse me. So in verse 33, we read that the Egyptians were urgent with people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. Something to recognize with that is that God's plan to use these plagues and to use these signs and wonders accomplishes purpose. 
to release Israel from Egypt. They're like, hey, get these people out. It's 10 plagues, it's been the worst. We're done. Get them out. God's purpose with these plagues has been accomplished. After 10 rounds of God revealing his power to the Egyptians, they're finally realizing they are no match for him. Israel was being delivered. However, Israel's rescue didn't come out of thin air. Tony Morita points out three promises that are being fulfilled here. So it's not like this just happened. God was talking about this years before. And so first, the first promise we see is the fulfillment of Genesis 15. If you look at Genesis 15, verse 14, where God promised that, the, that his people would be rich upon leaving the land of Egypt. And for over 400 years, God's people were treated like slaves. They were treated like slaves. But now, in less than a year, so we don't know exactly how long it was since Moses showed up to Egypt and then the Israelites actually left Egypt, but we know that it was less than a year. And so for sometime within a year, Egypt went from being slaves and treated like slaves to being treated with great favor and treated like royalty. Here's our gold, here's our silver, here's the clothes that you want. Take whatever you want, go free. It's all yours. You see that in verses 35 and 36, that, they had, that Israel had done, again, we see the, the contrast there between Israel and Egypt. Israel did what God commanded. So they had done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Notice none of them, none of, none of the Israelites received what they had, whether it was freedom or whether it was favor, whether it was possessions, because they earned it. So Israel didn't like muster up a militia and become so powerful that Egypt was like, hey, we just, we're no match for you. You should go freely. Israel didn't masterfully negotiate back payments for their slavery so that Egypt would give them gold and silver and clothing. No, rather God gave them favor with the Egyptians and God fought for them so that they may go free. The second promise of three that we see is that they would be a great multiplying nation. That promise was now being fulfilled. That's from Genesis 12, verse two. I'm not gonna read it, but you're happy to, to look at that. Now, remember, Israel showed up 430 years ago to Egypt with how many people? See it in Exodus 1, with 70. 70 people. And now we read that there's over 600,000 men not including women and children. So commentators said it's probably closer to around 2 million people that Israel has now exploded into, if you include the women and children. God's promise to make them a fruitful people, a multiplying people, has been fulfilled. And he said that hundreds of years prior. And then the third promise is that the nations were being blessed through the seed of Abraham. It's easy to overlook this right here. But this part, this part's interesting. Hopefully the rest of it was interesting. Um, <laughs> But this part, I really want to see. Um, so in Exodus 12, 38, we see a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So that word mixed multitude, it's easy to just read over, but it means non-Israelites went with them, which indicates, friends, that some of the Egyptians saw what was going on and said, we are done here in Egypt and we want to go with you. Yahweh's your God, we're with you. And so it wasn't just Israel that left, it was a mixed multitude. And so 
What we see with that is that even in the Old Testament, when God's primarily working out his salvation plan through a people, through Israel, even in the Old Testament, God had a heart for the nations. He wanted to see others come to him. He provided ways of salvation so that they may enter into the covenant community and be saved along with his people. Friends, do you have a heart for the nations? Have you ever considered going into other nations like Egypt, like Moses did with Egypt, to proclaim the good news, to proclaim salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ? God sent Moses to Egypt, and it led to the salvation of millions of people. It also led to salvation of those who were outside of Israel. Pray, friends, that God would raise up more men and women to take this good news into difficult areas. Moses did not have the red carpet rolled out for him. It was a difficult task at great cost, but it led to the salvation of many people. And look, if you sense God calling you into that work, please do let us know. We want to come alongside you. We want to help you. As an SBC church, we, we pool funds with other SBC churches so that missionaries that are raised up can go fully funded. So you don't have to worry about raising funds. We, we want to come alongside you and say, hey, we want to train you for this so that we can send you out joyfully. Let us know if the Lord seems to be calling you toward missions. But also something for us to see is that Israel was then called to remember God's rescue. So look at verse 42. We see that it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So the the phrase there, what is a night of watching? What does that mean? Well, I don't think that's the best translation. Look, I love the ESV. It's my primary reading Bible. It's one that we primarily teach out of. However, I think that the New American Standard or the Christian Standard actually has a better translation of this. So the New American Standard says it is a night to be observed for the Lord, to observe what the Lord has done. Christian Standard said it was a night of vigil in honor of the Lord. Commenting on this to to help us better understand, Matthew Henry says that this first Passover night was a night of the Lord much to be observed. But the last Passover night in which Christ was betrayed and in which the the Passover with the rest of the ceremonial institutions was superseded and abolished, was a night of the Lord much more to be observed. So he's making the connection there between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. So he says, look, the the first night, we want to observe it. But the the last Passover night is to be much more be observed. When a yoke heavier than that of Egypt was broken from off our necks and a land better than that of Canaan was set before us. That, with Israel and Egypt, was a temporal deliverance to be celebrated in their generation. This is an eternal redemption to be celebrated in the praises of glorious saints, world without end. So the Israelites were commanded to set a time each year to have a night of observance, to observe this is what the Lord did. He delivered us out of Egypt. He rescued us from our slavery. So God's people are called to remember his faithfulness in rescuing them. And look, we may not be in physical bondage, but we're all in need of rescuing. Now the question is rescued from what? 
Well, rescue from at least two things. So the first is the bondage of sin. And the second is God's judgment against our sin. And look, friends, the Exodus teaches us that the Lord provides rescue from both. From the slavery that we have in sin and from God's judgment against our sin. He rescues us from bondage by giving us a new heart. We no longer desire that old way. We now desire to walk in holiness. He's placed inside of us his Holy Spirit. So we desire holy things, the things that reflect the one whom we've been united to, Jesus Christ. This new heart desires God more than sin. So the, so the slavery that was put upon us to walk towards sin is now released. And we're now able to freely walk toward Christ, toward God. But the second is rescue from his judgment. And he does that by providing a substitute. So God is perfectly holy and just. And so therefore his, his holy judgment will fall upon all sin. Does that make sense? God's holy and he's just. And so therefore his holy judgment is going to fall upon all sin. If that didn't happen, then that would make him unholy. So it's guaranteed it's going to happen. And so therefore either you are going to pay for that sin because it's your sin or someone has to stand in your place. And God has provided a substitute by sending Jesus who lived a sinless, spotless life and who died a sinner's death as a substitute for all those who would call on him. Friends, Jesus is our great rescuer. And so brothers and sisters, if you are following Jesus, remember your rescue. Remember the slavery that you were once in and the fact that you have now been freed from that. Now, you still might be wrestling with sin. I get that. That's part of the Christian life. It's helpful at times just to look at your life, depending on how long you've been a Christian, in maybe five-year increments. Am I making progress in five-year increments? Look where I was 10 years ago. Look where the Lord has brought me now. Praise God. Remember your slavery and remember the rescue that God has provided for you. Also, brothers and sisters, pray that the nations would know Jesus. Support organizations and people who are engaged in that work. Go and participate in that yourself, in taking the good news there. Let's strive as a church to raise up missionaries, to raise up brothers and sisters, to send them with the good news of the gospel to areas that desperately need to hear it. So that those areas may also know of the great and powerful God who loves them enough to send a substitute for them so that they may be reunited to him. May our church be a factory just producing over and over again gospel missionaries, missionary beacons to be sent out into darkest places of the world to bring the light of the gospel there, to shine brightly for King Jesus. But then third, we're called to remember God's sacrifice. See this in the last nine verses. So the question is, how do we properly remember God's sacrifices? Well, in verses 14 through 28 of this same chapter, God provides specific instructions for what it looks like to properly remember what he's getting ready to do. How to properly remember the sacrifice that he has provided so that Israel could go free. It was a very symbolic meal. We talked about it a little bit last week, but just to give you a refresher, the lamb was symbolic of the substitutionary sacrifice that needed to take place. Blood needed to be shed. The unleavened bread that they were supposed to eat signified a new beginning. 
but it also signified the hastiness that they had to up and leave. And the bitter herbs is to remind them symbolically of the bitterness of being slaves to Pharaoh. And so now, after giving those specific instructions, the Lord comes back to the Passover after they've gone. And so now they've gone, and, and remember, who came with them is a mixed multitude. So it wasn't just Israelites. So now God has to give them additional explanation as to, hey, who can participate in this meal? It's not just Israelites now. It's a mixed multitude. So who can participate in this Passover meal? Well, to summarize it, you can look at verse 48, where he says, no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So it's not only Israelites shall eat of it. He could have said that. Say, hey, you're a mixed multitude. This is only for ethnic Israelites. He didn't say that, though. He said, no uncircumcised person, which leaves the door open to say those who are are currently not circumcised, who want to be a part and want to join this covenant community, they can be circumcised and they can participate in this meal. So whether it's foreigners who were just non-Israelites or slaves or hired workers or strangers, they could all eat of the Passover as long as they received the covenant sign of circumcision. Now, why? Why was it that no uncircumcised person could participate? That seems a little strange. Well, we've already referenced Genesis earlier, but I'm going to reference it again. So Genesis 17, God made a promise or a covenant. So when you hear the word covenant, you can think promise. He made a covenant or a promise to Abraham. And he promised that he would preserve Abraham's descendants, that he would make them very numerous, that nations and kings would come from him, and that they'd have their own land, Canaan. The sign for that promise covenant was male circumcision. And so every male who received circumcision was considered a member of that covenant community. And therefore the meal remembering God preserving or recruit or rescuing his covenant people was only to be participated by those who had the covenant sign. So he's delivering his covenant people out of Egypt and he's saying, hey, look, if you wanna be a part of this covenant people, then you can participate in this meal remembering the deliverance of my covenant people. But if you are not part of my covenant people, then you shouldn't participate in the meal remembering their deliverance. Does that make sense? So what was happening was God was saying, hey, look, no circumcision means no membership in the covenant community, which means no community meal, no Passover. But anyone, anyone who would believe the covenant promises, who would then receive the sign to indicate that they, all, that they do believe those covenant promises, circumcision, were brought into the covenant community and they were welcome to the table to enjoy the, the meal remembering their deliverance. Stuart Douglas points out in his excellent commentary on Exodus, he says, circumcision indicates membership in the covenant community of God. Since membership in that community is necessary for admission to the Passover rite, circumcision is necessary for admission to the Passover rite. It does not matter whether or not a person is a native-born Israelite. So it doesn't matter if he's, if he's an ethnic Israelite. If he is not circumcised, no Passover for him. If he is circumcised, it would be disobedient of him not to partake. And look, friends, this pattern wasn't unique to the Old Testament. It also continued on in the New Testament. However, Jesus changed the covenant signs because he installed a new and better covenant with new signs. And so before Jesus in the Old Testament, the one-time visible sign for membership was circumcision. After Jesus, the one-time visible sign for membership is baptism. 
before Jesus, the ongoing. So there's a one-time sign and an ongoing sign. So before Jesus, the ongoing sign that you're part of the covenant community was the Passover. Now, in the new covenant, new and better covenant with new signs, the ongoing sign that you're part of the covenant community is the Lord's Supper, which we participate in every week. Tom Schreiner says that uh, baptism is that initiation right into the Christian church, just like circumcision was initiation right into Old Testament Israel. The Westminster Confession says something similar. Baptism is a sacred or is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church. Calvin said that baptism is the sign of the initiation by which we are received into the society of the church. And friends, this is why every week when we participate in the Lord's Supper, you hear us say something very similar, the same two things each time. That it's for, there are two requirements for participating, that's for baptized followers of Jesus. So you've received the one time, the one visible sign, the one time entry initiatory sign. And the second thing is that you're a member in good standing at a gospel preaching church. So you're part of a covenant community. You received signs saying, I believe the promises. I'm part of the community. I'm going to enjoy the covenant meal. Does that make sense? So if you've trusted God's covenant promises, and if you've received the covenant sign, and you're a member of a covenant community, then friends, you get to participate in the covenant meal. I say all of that to make the point that God went through great lengths to help us remember the sacrifice that bought our freedom. So when we participate in the Lord's Supper each week, don't just go through the motions. Be reminded of the lamb that was slain so that you could be brought into God's covenant community. Be reminded of the great price that was paid. Be reminded that judgment was coming for you. But rather than your body and your blood being shed, Christ stepped in your place so that you could freely be brought back into a relationship with Yahweh. The Passover was to remind Israel of God delivering them from their bondage by means of a spotless lamb. And Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Do me a favor, consider various portions of Luke's account of the Lord's Supper. Turn with me to Luke 22. I'm going to read a few verses from this. We're going to jump around a little bit, but I'll, I'll let you know where I am. So in Luke 22, starting in verse 7, we read, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And then jump down to verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And look at verse 19. We read that he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after that, after they had eaten, saying, this cup 
that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So here's what I want us to see with that. Jesus, on the night that they're participating in the Passover meal, Jesus is saying, this meal normally points you back to a lamb, a spotless lamb that delivered you from the bondage of Egypt. I am trying to redirect your eyes now to look at me. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I am the Passover lamb. This bread that you eat, it's my body, which is broken for you. Don't be reminded just of that lamb. Yes, be reminded of it, but it's to point you to, to me. Jesus is telling him that, that his body is the spotless one. That this is my blood shed for you so that you may go free. Not just from physical slavery, but from eternal spiritual slavery. So they would not have to experience the judgment that is coming for all people. The Israelites once trusted in the blood of a spotless sacrifice to temporarily protect them from God's judgment. And they had to continue making sacrifices. They had to continue to do that. But now Jesus is saying that anyone who trusts in his blood will be eternally protected from God's judgment. So all of us here, let's remember our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Our salvation, our union with God is not based on us being good. It's based on a spotless lamb who took our place and took the full measure of God's wrath against sin so that we would not have to. Your freedom was not free. So remember the cost. We're just saying Christ is mine forevermore for Christ has paid for every failing, every single one of our sins. He's paid for everyone, past, present, and future. I am his forevermore. Christian, remember the price of your freedom. Know that greater freedom still awaits you in Christ. And if you're not a Christian, remember that God's judgment does come for us all. No one is overlooked. No one slips through the cracks. Don't wrongly assume, like the Egyptians, that you will be overlooked or that you can perhaps uh, trust in something else to save you from God's judgment. Instead, throw yourself without reservation onto the Passover lamb who pays for the sins of all those who call on him. Jesus is the firstborn who received God's judgment and who died in the place of all those who trust him. Jesus is the great rescuer who delivers his people from bondage. And Jesus is the true Passover lamb who died so that all marked by his blood would go free forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have provided a way for us to go free. That you have first loved us not because of things that we have done, not because of the good works or the righteousness that we have. So we know all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. But thank you for loving us before the foundation of the world, before we had ever done anything. And thank you for sending your son to accomplish salvation on our behalf. Lord, we pray that those in here who have not yet trusted him for salvation would today. Lord, for those of us who have, we pray that we would not forget the price that was paid for our salvation. Thank you for sending a lamb. We pray this in that lamb's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.